This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I go heavy and tell you how to comfort the dying. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak welcome back everybody rich what's going on man i am sitting here on a cold rainy morning uh at the studio talking to my best pal justin well, it sounds like a cold, rainy morning might be appropriate for the topic that uh that we're about to get into but we can save that for a couple of minutes man uh what are you drinking, bud? I'm drinking... I sent you a picture of this, I think, a day or so ago when I first got at the Jefferson's Ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me about that, mate. You, we talked about it over text message a little bit, but uh, tell me a little bit about that. You, you ever had it before? I've not, man. I've it's, Supposedly, it's aged at sea or something. It's caught my yeah. eye a number of times, and I just never have uh, bought a bottle of it. One of our real good friends, she absolutely loves it. It's her favorite bourbon. And so it always kind of been in the back of my mind. And my wife's favorite is Blanton's. So I actually went to the store to get her some Blanton's. And I went there and they were out. So I'm like, okay, well, our friend, she's got a similar palate to Lisa. She loves Jefferson's Ocean. And as I understand it, and I could be wrong, but according to their marketing material, they take bourbon that's already aged for eight years. <clears throat> and then they put it to sea. And I think it hits like five different countries. It crosses the equator like four times. It's rocking and sloshing in the bottom of the ship and in the, in the barrels. And it's supposed to give it a, a little extra uh, aging time, one. And number two, you know, as the temperatures rise and fall in the cargo hold, it forces the, the bourbon into the wood a little bit more. Uh, but I tell you... Some of the things I read about it was absolutely true, and I think I told you this on text, that it's a little briny, a little salty. Huh. Yeah, I, I can't you, even imagine what that, what that tastes yeah, it's like, a, man. Well, it's a smidge off-putting, but if you add a drop of water, it, it really does waken the whiskey up, and it turns it into a nice, caramelly, salty uh, bourbon. It was, it's really nice, uh, great mouthfeel, but you, you do want to add a little touch of water to it to, to bring the flavors out. Huh, I may have to uh may have to give that a shot, man, or or try yours next time I see you or something. I that's interesting. What was 100%. there a, it comes in several di- with several different age statements, right? Is there a specific one you got? I, now that I don't know. I th- I th- I thought there was no age statement on it. I could be wrong. I know that Jefferson's makes like two or three different products and the bottles are all the same, so uh you have to look for the one that says Ocean and then there's different voyages like um, the two that the liquor store had was uh, Voyage 12 and Voyage 16, so I got her the, the 16th Voyage. Okay, And okay. you can, yeah, you can read a little bit about all the countries they stopped in, and, you know, the 16th Voyage, they had some really wonky weather, and it, I think it, it, it could be marketing, Justin. I, it, I'd have, I have no idea. I'd have to ask a bourbon connoisseur uh, better than me. Still very, very interesting concept of aging stuff at sea. You know, I didn't realize what you just told me about the barrels expanding and contracting. I, w- I, was, in, uh, I was down in Rhode Island 
at the Thomas Two Rum Distillery, and they were saying that they make a you know old New England style rum. It's all single barrel. Every single bottle comes out of the barrel that it came out of, and and that's it. There's no master blender or everything, anything. So um, it just is what it is. And and uh, they stick to that because that's how rum was distilled in you know seventeen eighteen hundreds, and it's in this you know un unair conditioned unclimate controlled metal building, and you obviously you have very extreme temperature swings in New England down to very very cold temperatures in the winter, uh, and then up to uh, you know pretty damn hot temperatures sitting in that metal building in the sun in the summers and and. That's where I learned that concept of the wood expanding and contracting and all that. Yeah, when we were in a distillery in Scotland that was right on the water, and you know the tops of the, I don't know if they call them rickhouses over there, but with the barrels that were stored, it was completely open, so you could we could see literally the salty, misty morning air, the salty air going into the rickhouses, and they're like, well, that's where it gets the taste, you know, and, and it did have that... That salty, oceany kind of uh, taste to it, which is pretty freaking cool. What are, you, what are you drinking, man? Man, I am having nothing nearly so fancy or cool or interesting. I'm having a beer from, uh, this is actually uh, brewed in Vermont. It's called Long Trail Ale. And um, this, man, this is just a real mild amber ale. Really, really full, I, I say mild, really full-bodied flavor. But but um, I guess there's not a single real distinct thing I could pick out of it. It's, it's just a, it's just a real clean drinking beer, man. Hmm. Sounds good. I'll check it out. Yeah. It's not bad. It's not bad. So what'd you do this week, bud? Well, this week, um, finally got some, uh, real good, uh, time on the mats with, uh, my buddy Cody and we trained at, uh, Samuel Braga's place. If you don't know Samuel Braga, he's like 10th or 11th time world champion, IBJJF champion. We trained at his, Jim and um trained with my my coach Lance and uh went to the range of course did some real good range training my buddy Mike the Machine Bruce former fighter he came down and we hung out this weekend and um then I we took my beautiful bride to see that this is a really cool thing our movie theater here in the small town I live in they decided to have a showing of It's a Wonderful Life on the big screen and it was amazing so that that was kind of the cherry on top for the week man that's awesome, man. I remember It's a Wonderful Life being on uh, every, every at least once every single year at Christmas. My father absolutely loves that movie, and I've got a certain fondness for it. And, uh, you know, man, we, we talked about this. I don't think we're going to make it happen this year, but uh, I think next year we're going to have to roll out an episode about our favorite Christmas movies and, uh, you know, maybe go into a little more, little more detail on those with well, I guess we don't have to worry about spoilers with It's a Wonderful Life, huh? <laughs> right. I would imagine not. It's been around since, what, 1947, I think it came yeah, out? Yeah, it's, it's been around a minute, yeah. Which is pretty amazing. I, I think it was filmed in 46 and released in 47. It, it, so it never dawned on me what that means is um, Frank Capra, who directed that, you know, he had spent the last several years in the Pacific filming, you know, combat, right? And then, and Jimmy Stewart had been flying bombing runs, and then it's like, okay, war's over. Let's go make this beautiful movie. And you know, it, it could have been a you know a time for really dark mood in the country, but you know, you have a, this product that's a wonderful life come out, and I'm like, wow. You know, once that dawned, uh, you know, I, I don't. 
this is kind of a conundrum, Rich. I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in celebrity or fame. Uh, in fact, I think I, I get a little frustrated when people are like, oh, my God, I met so-and-so or, or whatever, even though, uh, even though I do tell a story about having a beer in a bar with uh, Michael Keaton every now and then. But uh, I didn't even know who the guy was, man. He introduced himself to me. But uh, but anyway, I, I, I don't put a whole lot of stock in celebrity. I get frustrated with putting these people on a pedestal because professional athletes, uh, actors, singers, whatever, are um, actors especially, man. They don't actually do anything. They pretend to be people. But I get a little choked up, man, when I think about uh, think about people doing things like that, when I think about Ted Williams who had an, am- an amazing baseball career, volunteer- volunteering for the military, like flying uh, P-51 Mustangs, I-, I believe in Korea. Uh, you might correct me if I'm wrong on that, but uh, that I-, I, find a lot of, uh, I find a lot of inspiration in that, man. People leaving these just incredibly successful careers to go serve their country. And, um, you know, maybe I am just a little jaded, but I doubt we'd see that kind of outpouring today. Well, we, we didn't see that kind of outpouring today. And, you know, I think that we, we, aside from Pat Tillman and maybe one or two others, there, that did not happen, but it absolutely did happen in World War II. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Anyhow, Anyhow. sorry to, sorry to, we're, today's just going to be dark, man. That's, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if, it's funny. I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the window and it's rainy and, uh, you know, this, this landscape is pretty, uh, pretty gray and, and I, I know our topic is going to be pretty pretty profound, but before we do that, man, what did you do to the, this week, man? Made a couple of a couple of high notes here. I got to the range. I did my vehicle PMs, of course. Uh, last night I sat for uh, about three and a half hours. Another tattoo appointment. Working on this big old piece I got going on, and uh, may, man, we just made a ton of headway. I probably got a couple more appointments to go, but. Uh, we got a lot done last night. Um, I was just, I was in the zone, man. I was just eating the pain and loving it. And we, uh, I, I don't think we even took a break last night, man. It was, uh, it was a good session. I bottled a batch of beer this week. And probably the biggest thing I did is have the opportunity to, opportunity to entertain my friend, Mike Wood. Uh, Mike is, uh, he's been on the American Warrior Show a couple times. He's a writer on revolverguy.com and he just happened to be up here and uh, uh, had a night to spare, and I was, uh, well, I'll just say it was a heck of an opportunity to have the privilege to uh, feed him and put him up for the night and, and uh, spend some time with him. Oh, that's cool, man. I've never got to uh, meet Mike, but I love when he comes on the our other podcast, that guy's got a wealth of information, and he knows about it. It's interesting, when you introduced um me to Mike um, through the email. <clears throat> He's an absolute expert at an event that not many people know about these days, but there's so much that the New Hall incident, and maybe at some point we'll have to get him on to to talk about that because I'm that's a fascinating uh, episode in law enforcement history. It, it was a watershed moment, and uh, you know, I, I was uh, I pointed something out to Kai the other day about the the Miami shooting, and. She said, man, I, cause she's, uh, she's reading the Glock book now. Um, and I, I mentioned something uh, to her about that. And, uh, she's like, it's amazing how much I know about this thing since I've met you. She said, I'd never heard of it before, but since I've met you, I've heard about this thing all over the places and know, uh, like could tell the story myself. And, uh, but I, I bring that up because, uh, the Miami shooting 
in what was it, 1986, Rich? Yep, April 1986. And yep. the uh, Newhall shooting in 1971. Those two shootings have deeply impacted law, like just changed everything, man. Equipment, protocol, training, just you name it, man. Those, those are uh, two infamous events that have massively changed the way that law enforcement does business. Oh, yeah, there's not probably not a law enforcement officer in America that's not intimately familiar with at least my, uh, uh, what happened in Miami. A lot of them don't know about Newhall, and that's a shame because there's a lot that can be learned there, even though it was, you know, almost a, you know, almost a, what, half a, I guess half a century ago at I'll this see, point. 81, 91, 2001, Yeah, all my, <laughs> in three years, it'll be 50 years ago. Well, I'll tell you what, man, uh, let me plug Mike's book. His book is called Newhall Shooting, A Tactical Analysis. Dude, he so he recounts the story in the first part of the book, and then he goes on to talk about you know some things that could have been done differently and some some reasons leading up to that, and you know then kind of charts the evolution of the California Highway Patrol's equipment and training protocols and stuff like that. When you're reading that story, man, I have been I've read it several times now. I've been so on the edge of my seat and knowing what's going to happen and just thinking, man. If he only did this, like, you know, it, it could have totally turned the tide and these four very young California Highway Patrolmen would, would not be dead today, man. It, it uh, He writes so well. I, I can't speak highly enough about it, man. He writes better than I do, which I hate to say because he writes on my blog a lot, but, but he does. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I need to, I don't. No, I don't have a copy of that. I'm going to buy one. I'm going to make a note of that while we're on here. But um, so... You ready to talk about the episode? Let's do it, brother. Speaking of the death of four young highway patrolmen, it might be a, a good segue. Yeah, hit me, man. This, yeah, this episode, man, it's something that um, when you started, I think it was episode one where you talked about the quote that you really like, and one of the things was the things that all humans need to be able to do, and one of them was comfort the dying, and it, <clears throat> just hearing you say that kind of stuck with me, and it reminded me of some of the experiences I'd had comforting loved ones as they were passing and being with them in the final moments. And I thought, you know what, that was something that nobody had ever prepared me for. And, um, it's, it's not necessarily an intuitive process, I think, but for a lot of reasons, Justin, you and I were talking about them the other day that we're so far removed from death in the 21st century. Uh, it's not like it was, you know, for our grandparents or great grandparents that we probably needed to do an episode on it. Yeah, that's true. We are very far removed from that. And I think it makes us, gives us a general discomfort around death. We don't uh, kill our own meat. We don't kill our own chickens to put in the pot. We don't, a large percentage of the country doesn't hunt for anything. And there's a lot of benefits to that, but there's also some disadvantage with that, man, that makes us very, very weird around death. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I don't know how I would choose to couch this, but um, I, I've had the opportunity to witness death, uh, untimely death, very up close and personal, and and the broken bodies of, you know, of soldiers and Marines, and, uh, you know, not only that, but of, uh, you know, car crash, people who've been involved in car crashes and house fires and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> and I, it, it, let me tell a little story, if I may, Rich, when when we were leaving Iraq in, in early 2005, Colonel Tucker, the uh, RCT commander, talked to us a little bit, and he said, you're going to go home and your family's not going to understand. 
and they never will understand. And that's the gift you give them is they don't have to understand this. And I, I definitely think there's something to that, and that's always stuck with me. But at the same time, I think some more understanding of death is, is probably not a bad thing. And I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't know how we find that or how we, I don't know how we get there without experiencing some, some things that are unpleasant. Yeah, and you have to. And <clears throat> I think a lot of people shy away. I remember when, and we'll talk a lot of these stories as we go through here, but you know, when my um, when my sister was dying, almost no one chose to be in the room with her as they unplugged the machines. And, um, you know, they just couldn't handle that. And I'm like, you know, there's absolutely nowhere in this world I'd, I'd want to be than right here in these final moments, because that's what I would want uh, for myself. I wouldn't want people to be like, I can't handle it. Or, or these um, people that when they have their pets put down, they drop the pet off and come back and pick up the ashes later or whatever. I'm like, what are you doing in that final moment? You know, you don't have the courage to to face that the mortality of this thing you love, you know, so much. I just don't understand that, man. You know, not only is it a failure of courage to face that mortality, but it's a failure of of courage to be there to support that that person or that pet or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Totally. Totally. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Well, one of the things I wanted to, uh, Doctor Jordan Peterson has a thing. You know, he says. Uh, when people are like, well, how should I live my life? He's, one of the things that he says is be the most responsible person at your father's funeral. So um, if you try to run your life in that regard, uh, I think being able to comfort uh, someone is something that would make you a very responsible person at your father's funeral. The other thing is it's a preparedness issue, right? I, I agree it is, man. It's uh, And I love that quote from Dr. Peterson, be the most responsible person at your father's uh, funeral, because when I imagine myself in that scenario, I don't want to be the person that's uh, just a wreck and everybody's got to take care of me. I would much rather be the person that says, okay, this is sad, but we've got to, you know, we've got to get through this. We've got to get X, Y, and Z done. And I think that's probably where, where most of our listeners would choose to be given the, given the opportunity. Um, and you're not going to be that person without preparing for this, without just like anything else, Rich, you, you maybe don't necessarily automatically know how to comfort the dying. You have to prepare for this. You have to study it. You have to learn it a little bit. And then uh, I'm sure at some point, most of us will get the opportunity to practice it. But you have to be prepared for this. And likewise, uh, you should probably be a little bit prepared to cope with your own mortality. Would you agree? I totally agree. And <clears throat> we talked about this offline. That's something that you know, having been in combat and seen uh, people, you know, ripped to shreds and being a cop and seeing people torn to pieces by motorcycle wrecks and car crashes and et cetera, et cetera, you know, I'm still not very comfortable with it. And um, even if you read the literature, like uh, I'm big on Stoke philosophy and we'll have an episode on that at some point, but uh, I think it helps with uh, getting your mind wrapped around your um, ultimate mortality but if you read the literature on how to uh, not be fearful of death, I'm like, I'm doing every one of those, but still I'm not very comfortable with it. Um, and that's just something that I'm going to work through. In my, I mean, I, I realize it's, in some regards it's the most natural thing we do is be born and die. Yeah, it, it sure is. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think I'm comfortable with death. I have a very dark humor. I'm, you know, almost anyone that... Uh, it's been around me for very long and tries to make any kind of plans beyond a few years with me. will hear me say, uh, 
you know, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if I live that long. Uh, and that's, you know, maybe just a, I, I don't know if that's a healthiest way to deal with it or not, man. And uh, <laughs> uh, I do kind of have a mentality of, uh, if I did know I was going to live this long, if I did, I would have taken better care of my teeth. But um, yeah, I, I do think there needs to be some comfort with that and some coming to terms with the realiza- realization that when you're actually confronted with that, um, there's probably no amount of preparation that's going to make you perfectly comfortable with it. There's probably still going to be some uh, element of resistance in your body, in your mind. But I, I think being being prepared for your own death and, and being able to go about it at least somewhat um, with some element of grace, not, you know, I, I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm, I'm, this is a very empathy laden episode. I'm, I'm not criticizing anybody for, for how they behave around this, but um, that helps your loved ones too, right? If you're a nervous wreck, if you're a disaster, that's, <laughs> that's probably not helping them or helping them help you. Totally. And I, I, um, you know, like my wife, she's totally like cool with it. It's like, yeah, you know, no big deal. And, um, for me, it's like, it, I, I'm almost put it in the category of it's me giving up, you know, I'm, I'm going to f- struggle and fight for every damn breath I can all the way to the end, you know, but when it's ultimately my time, I hope I have the courage to, as the Vikings say, uh, sing my death song. But, um, I think that, what we're going to talk about today, man, is really, I stole this from the National Institute on Aging. You know, we are generalists. Uh, we don't have any formal training on comforting the dying. I looked up the literature, and I want to give them full credit before we proceed. But I think before we get started, it's important to know, um, have clarity with the person that you are maybe comforting. Are they truly dying? And there's some things that you could probably talk to the doctor who's in charge of their care about, right? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think this assumes that uh, this is the result of some sort of chronic illness or, you know, long, long amount of suffering. This is probably not uh, a, a traumatic death that's moments away. Uh, would, like, would you agree that that's kind of the context where the confines we're working within? Well, it could be, or a... Uh you know, they've been in an automobile accident. They've made it to the hospital. Some, some like that, or a chronic. Okay, yeah, okay, I mean, I, if they're, I got you. I yeah, got you. you know what I mean. Uh, so yeah, you you definitely want to uh, want to talk to the doctor and or whoever's there, whatever whatever whoever the care provider is, and find out if they actually are dying. Right. Yeah, because my sister, when um, you know, it's like, well, she's in ICU. Uh, okay, tomorrow morning we're going to move her to palliative care. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I'm like, well, what the hell is that? And everybody's tiptoeing around it. Well, it's 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 for people that this and that. I'm like, why don't you just tell me? You know, you have almost no faith in her recovering. Um, so you know, some of the questions are: if there's no cure, you know, what's going to happen next? If you're telling me that they have this condition that you have no fix for, what is going to happen? Make them say the words, or or, or like. Uh, why are you suggesting this test or treatment? Because you just told me there's probably little or no, you know, nothing to be gained from it, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, all good questions to ask. Um, ask why, you know, why are you recommending this this particular test or this particular treatment? And uh, is this going to bring any kind of physical comfort to this individual? And, and is this going to uh, accelerate this process, the di- the process of dying, or is it going to slow it down? Yeah, because that was another thing. You know, they they were doing all this stuff to her, and <clears throat> and on some level, you already let the cat out of the bag that she's probably not going to recover. Now you're putting her physically through all this, you know, stuff, and it's like, man, why are we doing this? 
how is this going to help her uh, along the way? So I think that that's important. You can also ask the caregiver, uh, like when I arrived at the hospital, because we were on vacation when she went to ICU, you know, and I, I arrived and I, you know, I had to go to my mother. How are you doing? What can I do for you? And turns out she had had her little, her little dog or Jack Russell that nobody had been taken care of. So I'm like, okay, look, let's do this. You go home and take care of Sparky or, you know, Lisa can go or whatever, but I think it's important to offer help for those that have been maybe a standing vigil, you know? I, I totally agree, man. Um, and, and sometimes that can be as simple as, can I run home and get you a change of clothes? Can I, you know, can I sit here for a couple hours and let you, let you get out of here for a little bit and, uh, and go take care of whatever, you know, take a shower and, and, you know, whatever you need to do. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but sometimes a, a token gesture to that primary caregiver, whoever's staying with that person can, uh, can mean an awful lot. That person can come back feeling, uh, reinvigorated. Totally agree. Yeah. So what is comforting the dying, Justin? What would you say to that? Well, that's a, uh, <laughs> That's a big question, man. Uh, but basically providing some sort of care, uh, some sort of support to that person that soothes them as they go through that that process of shuffling off this mortal mortal coil. And, uh, you know, really it's 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 comforting the that person while they're still living. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think the goal should be to either prevent or in some way relieve the suffering as much as you possibly can in those final moments, you know, and that's, uh, I think part of that is being uh, mindful of everything that's going on, being in the moment with them as they're going through it, you know, for them, there may not be a tomorrow. So, you know, uh, we're going to talk through some of the ways that you can comfort them. We'll also talk some of the conversations you can have with them, but we want to always seek to improve the quality of what little light they have left and respect their wishes as much as humanly possible, right? Absolutely, man. Uh, some of the thoughts before we get started, you know, everyone's wishes are different. How you may choose to pass or how my wife might or Kai might or I might are totally different. And I think we need to be respectful of the different needs that will come out of their wishes. Would you agree? Yeah, I totally agree, man. And this is a, this is a thing that... Uh, <laughs> You know, I've been at odds with my with my parents about. Um, you know, I want to, I either want a burial at sea. I just want my you know simple cotton shroud and be be tossed in the ocean, or I want a burial just in dirt in a in a simple cotton shroud, decomposed like people have been decomposing for hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of years. Um, and they uh, they are very very uncomfortable with that idea, uh, and probably due to some measure uh, just with the fact they're uncomfortable with the idea that I might precede them. But um, yeah, man, I, I think whatever that person's wishes are, as long as they're uh, legal and, and ethical, uh, you should make an attempt to to uphold those and be supportive of those wishes, even if they don't exactly align with you know what you would do or what you think should be done. Yeah, my my wife on her I think I've mentioned it on here before, my wife's mother was killed very suddenly in a car crash. <clears throat> and um you know, her wishes was to be cremated. Well, of course her daughters, that was the last thing that they wanted to imagine was their mother being burned, you know. It was for some reason very traumatic for them, but they ultimately chose to respect those wishes and I think that's that's incredibly important, but uh 
there are four ways that we're going to talk about today as far as how you can provide comfort to the dying. And we'll start with physical comfort, but we're also going to talk about mental and emotional needs, spiritual issues, and then there's some practical tasks that we need to consider. So I guess we could start with physical comfort first, Justin. What what are some ways that we can comfort the person that way? Well, there's there's any number of ways that we can comfort someone physically. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot about my mother as she, uh, she spent, I'm going to say probably close to a year um, providing almost round-the-clock care for her mother as her mother passed. And, uh, you know, everything from just basic physical comfort, like making sure – you know, she had enough pillows and her, you know, her pillow was the one she wanted and, and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I, I think maybe first and foremost, um, pain uh, needs to be considered. Um, what? Tell me about that, man. Well, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, there are pain meds that obviously, uh, you know, some people have different feelings about pain medication. But I will tell you, this person's dying, man. They're, they're, we don't have to worry about oxy addiction or uh, opioids or anything like that. If, if it's going to help alleviate suffering and bring them some peace and closure, then I'm, I don't have a problem with that at all. And, you know, the next thing is probably <clears throat> a lot of people experience breathing problems as the muscles in their uh, start to go. If morphine can definitely help with this, I saw this with a real good friend of mine who passed away uh, probably about two years ago. Morphine was a really good aid for him as he passed. But one of the things in the literature, Justin, I wasn't aware of is skin irritation as people are passing. Have you are you familiar with this? Uh, not really. I I am familiar with the concept of uh, of having ice chips handy. I know that's in the show notes uh, to you know to moisten people's lips and their mouth and whatever. Uh, but I am like I I wasn't aware this was a uh, a bigger problem than that. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, I guess it's more prevalent in the elderly. But um, you know, like you said, Justin, ice chips, lip balm can be great. A damp cloth, uh, turning them so that they don't uh, develop any uh, the bed lesions or whatever they're called. But and I saw this with Roland's wife, Susie. And it was interesting with when Roland passed because uh, Roland was one of my, uh, when I was with the Red Cross, he was one of my key volunteers. And he was an amazing man and, and a tremendous, I call him a friend, even though, you know, he was old enough to be my grandfather. But he really was. I mean, he was a friend of mine in every possible way. And, uh, one of the greatest honors I ever had at his funeral was being introduced by his wife as Roland's best friend. So, But when Roland passed, he had been a, a corpsman during Korea with the Marines, so he would saw a lot of death there. He had been a mortician. Uh, he had been a uh, volunteer in hospice care. So he, he knew more about death and dying than probably anybody I'll ever meet in 10 lifetimes. Um, so to watch him go through that, and his wife Susie had been a, a volunteer, so she knew, and they went right into the protocol, man, and and uh, they uh, they had a really good look on death, and they made it uh, probably a, a good a better experience for those of us that really loved him, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, man. You know, you bring up a couple a couple things there. Maybe I'm just a little more prone to see patterns today since we're talking about such a profound topic, but one of the first people's deaths I had to deal with as a child was a family member named Roland as well. And, uh, you know, I think probably every kid has some like elderly relative or most kids have some elderly relative that, that passes that, uh, you know, they're, they're aware of what that is. But, um, anyway, I, I, you very rarely hear the name Roland these days. And that, 
I'd completely forgotten about that until you just said that. The second thing on that, man, is I think volunteering in some sort of hospice care would be a phenomenal way to uh, to get a little bit more comfortable with this topic of death and do a heck of a lot of good um, in the you know along the way. I, I agree. I absolutely agree. <clears throat> the next part, uh, I guess, is digestive problems, man, and and some people will. Uh, in those final moments, they may get hungry all of a sudden, or they may not want to eat at all. If they don't want to eat, don't make them, right? If they, they can give them some meds that can help them with eating, but if they're hungry, I think it's okay to, to help them and support them to eat. But but if they're not uh, hungry, I think trying to force them could be a problem because a lot of people with advanced dementia, man, they, they have trouble swallowing. So I, I don't think you want to put them through something as traumatic as choking like that in those final hours. I agree. That could, uh, that could cause, you know, airways, airway compromise and precipitate the inevitable. And yeah, totally agree, man. Um, and you know, that's a tendency you, you see in, I I've seen personally, uh, people trying to feed you when you're not hungry, but, um, yeah, totally agree, man. If, if they're hungry, help them eat. If not, don't. Yeah, temperature sensitivity, man. I think we've all seen this with people in hospitals. You know, add or remove blankets as appropriate. Uh, provide a fan if they're hot. I mean, uh, everybody's different in this situation. You know that they. I think there's there's no. Uh, I think the literature said that more often than not they'll feel cold, but that's not always the case. Yeah, for sure, man. Just just be cognizant of that. Um, be. I, I guess be questioning about you, you know don't 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 be a passive participant in this. Be an active participant and ask them what they're feeling. Ask them if they're hungry. Ask them if they're cool enough or warm enough or or what they need uh, as far as their physical needs go. Speaking of physical needs, you know they're probably uh, going to experience a lot of fatigue. You know a lot of tired. So if you can maybe move the bedside commode to them or help keep their activities short, uh, if they do have to get out of bed at all probably would they would find that very helpful so what's next justin well i think the next piece this is probably one of the biggest ones in my mind is the uh, mental and emotional needs of of the dying and man this is a this is a, a i don't know for me i don't know why this is the single biggest one i feel like my physical stuff i you know kind of take care of itself or I can be in a, in some in some physical discomfort for a while and and be through it but i think the thing that I would struggle with the most personally is the mental and emotional aspect of dying. And, uh, you know, frequently there's some depression and anxiety that, that comes with that. And, you know, just your presence may go a long way toward alleviating that, but, uh, may also require medication. It's probably also a good, or medication may, uh, may help with that. It's probably also a good place to interject, um, about, um, psychedelics. Oh, yeah. Talk about that. So we've, we've recommended this as the book of the week before, but uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, and I don't have the full title in front of me. It's a very long title. Uh, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics and What It Means for Depression and Dying and Addiction and, and whatever else. Um, but people who are terminally ill uh, in in quite a few uh, quite a, I'm not going to say exhaustive clinical trials, but in pretty compelling uh, clinical trials who take psychedelics are able to kind of reimagine death and reimagine their place in the universe as just part of, you know, just, I hate to 
I, I, this isn't intended to be reductive, but kind of as a cog in this big machine and being all part of this natural process and, and tend to approach death with much less fear and anxiety than they otherwise might. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying <laughs> break the law or do anything. Uh, uh, um, definitely don't drug your relative with the uh, magic mushrooms if, if they don't want that, but something to maybe think about. I would probably certainly want to at least try that where I, were I the dying when I'm the dying. Yeah. I like that. Um, I might, I think it might be worthy of seeking out some of those doctors that maybe can provide that because I, as I understand it from hearing, uh, Michael Pollan, um, there are physicians out there that provide that. Am I correct? I don't know if they're physicians per se, but they are psychedelic guides or whatever that are very experienced in this and uh, very experienced in you know guiding that experience uh, in a in a manner of speaking. And we'll we'll post the link to the book in the show notes. It's it's also on our bookshelf acrosspeak.com forward slash bookshelf. Um, you can find the link to it there. But uh, we'll also post the link to his interview on the Joe Rogan experience where he he kind of covers the cliff notes of the books of the book. And it's a very, very interesting interview. You know, I've never, ever wanted to do psychedelics or even consider that. But after hearing him on Joe Rogan, man, I'm like, eh, maybe someday I'm not ru- ruling it out anymore. But um, I, I, let's talk about the next one. You know, that's Doctors and family members may feel helpless and start to withdraw. And I know that I saw this with my sister's doctor because he knew her as a nurse. And my sister was a young, beautiful uh, nurse. And um, I think, you know, he took it really hard because he was a very young doctor. And he had been her uh, providing her care for years as her, uh, her illness advanced. Uh, so I know that he felt helpless and would kind of withdraw a little bit. I know that the family started to do that. I would just encourage you, don't do that, right? If you can stay with them, stay with them. I, man, I, I can't agree with anything more strongly than that. Just the presence of someone there. And, you know, gallows humor. I've, uh, I used to work overseas with a, guy, a great, great friend, and we were. this story became famous Everybody's on a on a on this crappy Russian helicopter that feels like it's about to fall out of the sky, and you know one of my friends says, "Well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm not going to say his name. I'm glad you're here because at least I'm not going to die alone." And he just looks over above the noise and says, "Everybody dies alone," and and that's true to an extent. But man, if you can be there for that person in those final hours and moments man, be there. And, and again, this is just me putting my own stank on it on what I feel like I would need, but be there if you can be that person. Yeah, totally. And, and in the moments of being there, a physical touch is so powerful, man, a a light massage, just holding hands, um, you know, seeing, uh, especially as Roland was dying, you know, I mean, I just remember, uh, running my hands through his hair, and I, I could definitely see he was surrounded by women. And when I got there, I was like the only dude, you know. And uh, he just seemed to kind of like brighten up when I got there and got a little spunk back. And, you know, holding his hand as he passed, man, was I consider it an honor, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would too, man. Um, <clears throat> so physical touch, uh, maybe also think about the general environment and, and to the extent that you can, because this very may well be in a hospital setting, 
but personalize that environment, you know, to the extent that you can bring, you know, if, if you have the opportunity to bring some personal effects that are emotionally meaningful to that person or, or whatever it is, that's a, you know, that's a great way to provide a little bit of comfort. And, you know, one other thing on that, Rich, back to the why we're, why we're uncomfortable with dying. We used to die at home, man. We like the, the age of dying in a hospital is a relatively new one. Um, we used to die at home and we used to be confronted with that very, uh, very, very close. And now we move that into the sterile environment of the hospital, which I think has an impact both on the dying and uh, whoever he or she is survived by because they don't have to experience that. But also the dying have to go through this most profound of life events in a place they're unfamiliar with, in a place that that's, you know, sterile and strange and, you know, whatever. That is so, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, my mother's family are just mountain folk and she was, you know, she was born in a log cabin uh, in uh, McKaysville, Georgia, down there on the border with um, Copper Hill, Tennessee. And she was saying that uh, as a little girl growing up, when somebody died, they died at home, and like you said, Justin, they laid them out in the living room for three days, and uh, just to make sure they weren't, you know, before they threw them in the ground, that they weren't going to spring to life and be okay. And once they started stinking, it was time to bury them. And I mean, and again, this ain't the 1840s; this is the 1940s, uh, and so so much has changed just in you know what one one or two generations. Oh yes, because we we couldn't imagine that now. Yeah, it's changed massively, and even for even for my pet. Uh, my last dog uh, had to be had to be put down. He had he had cancer, and there was the option for surgery, but it wouldn't it would have greatly impacted his quality of life without meaningfully meaningfully extending his life. Um, and uh, you know, I, if you're a pet owner, a dog owner, and you're especially close to your pets, you can find a vet that will come to your house and perform that service for you. Uh, I man, it breaks my heart to think about taking my dog to a vet where they're scared to begin with. It's this terrifying environment, putting them on a stainless steel table and, you know, all that. But, uh, you know, you can do this at home. Your dog can uh, can breathe his last in your bed or in his dog bed or whatever the case may be. So I'd, I'd think seriously about that. God, I, I'm ashamed to say I'd never thought about that before, but I will absolutely talk to our vet about that um, when the when that time comes again for us. But, man, what a, what a great uh, tip. So and, and you talk about them laying on their bed or whatever, and I think that you're right. You know, a comfortable, uh, as much as you can make them comfortable and as uniquely personal to them, whether it's music that they enjoy. I know that um, one of our good friends uh, that you know, Terry, uh, in the days before he passed, you know, they would he loved Lincoln Park, and his wife would have, you know— um, in his hospital room jamming Lincoln Park, you know, and stuff like that. Cause she didn't like it, but she knew her husband liked it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the most recent experiences I've had with death are, are my grandparents. And, you know, I got to give my mother credit for that. She said, there is no way they're going to die in a hospice care place or in a hospital. Um, and you know, she put her whole life on hold during that, during that final period, made this heroic effort for all my mother's faults. Uh, she made an absolutely heroic effort at making her parents comfortable as they passed. And, uh, you know, to include, like you said, playing the music they liked and, uh, you know, reading them the things they liked and, and keeping them up to date on the, 
you know, the local news and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, man, if you can, if you can, uh, if that person has to go to the hospital and there's no other, no other, no other way because you, you know, you don't have the time or whatever, um, bring some, uh, some of home to them, I would say. Spot on. And finally, you know, your loving presence may be your last gift to your loved one as they, as they pass. But anything else on mental and emotional needs, Justin? Uh, I think that, I think that's about got it, man. I, I would say, uh, definitely, definitely weigh pretty heavy on that one and, uh, make sure you're providing that at very least. Yeah. So let's talk about the third thing, spiritual issues. As the, as the, you know, time draws near, they may start searching for meaning in, uh, in this life that they've had. As a matter of fact, that is the book that, um, that we're going to talk about today. Uh, the book of the week is going to be Man's Search for Meaning. We'll talk about that later. But uh, s- spiritual issues, Justin, what do you think? Um, I don't know, man. I'm not uh, the most spiritual dude, so I might let you, uh, I might let you start this one out. Okay. Um, I think that one of the things is ending disagreements, man. If you had held animosity, it's time to let that shit go. Uh, don't make that person carry that shit with them. If you can help them end some of that, uh, if they're willing to, I think it's a great thing. If they come to you and they want to squash it, I think that's it's an awesome thing. My wife has a friend right now that's dying <clears throat> out in California, and uh, Howie has already planned his memorial service. He wanted to do that. Um, uh, his husband and him have planned every detail because that's what how he wanted to do that's that's what he felt comfortable with and lisa's been given a gift and being able to talk to him almost daily on the phone and say all the things that they wanted to say to each other and i think that's important and she had that with with several people as they passed uh another good friend of mine james he died early of cancer and and she got to spend time with him and his family as they passed and one of the things that was important to james was hey man I know you don't really know my wife. We just got married recently before the diagnosis, and I'd like for you to become closer with her in my absence. I think she's going to need that. So uh, ending those disagreements are are important. I I agree, man. And not only only disagreements between you and whoever it may be that's dying, but don't bring your—death tends to bring together uh, parts of a family that maybe haven't seen each other in a while and parts of family that may— have some sort of, for lack of a better word, a beef. Don't bring that shit into that room, man. I, I've seen that before too, and there's like that's certainly not going to help the person who's dying. Leave that. I don't even know what to say to that. Well, I, I got one more thing because you, you're absolutely right, man. You just re- jog my memory. Of course, when my uncle Danny was a Marine killed in Vietnam, um, my mother talks about because I was you know not around, but she, she said that. Um, the family treated it like a damn family reunion. You know, everybody came over after the funeral and they're bringing food in and, Oh, Tom, I hadn't seen you in years. How you doing? How's your boy doing? And, and my grandmother ran him the fuck off. She's like, you know what? My son's dead. Get the fuck out of here. Have your family reunion somewhere else. So I think being mindful and respectful of what's going on, uh, in those moments, man, that don't, like you said, you could go one way and bring your beef into the room, or you could go the other way and, and turn it into, um, a get-together bullshitting session and forget that there's a person there that's experiencing this profound moment, you know? And maybe, you know, maybe uh, uh, 
probably a good deal of this advice here could could not only apply to comforting the dying, but also to comforting the bereaved. Yeah, totally. So a lot of people will take solace in their fate in those final moments. <clears throat> They're going to, I think it's important to, for you to talk about the importance of your relationship with them or their relationship with others or whatever. But um, if there are things like that, you know, sharing memories of good times is always, uh, always a good idea. Um, I don't know. I think one of the final things, and I'll turn it over to you, man, is talking to the person, not about them, almost like in third person as if they're not in the room. You know, I think it's important to be with the person who's dying and talk to them, not about them, if that makes sense. I agree. And, it, and, and uh, I would say, even if you're talking about them, uh, you know, don't, don't talk about that person uh, in the past tense and t- until that time comes. Totally agree. Give that individual, that person the respect, uh, even if they may not be super responsive or coherent of talking to them rather than, than talking about them. Totally, totally agree with that. And then the last bullet we've got on here is give the dying person the space to experience their own reality. Don't, um, you know, let them experience what they're experiencing. Um, you know, you can, uh, you try to calm that person if they're, you know, if they're very anxious or whatever, but don't invalidate that person's experience. Yeah, totally. So <clears throat> that's really about all we had as far as notes on spiritual issues. really want to talk to the practical things now that kind of some of the more nuts and bolts about it. You know, everyday task can really worry and overwhelm someone as they prepare for death. And I think that anything you can do to take over some of those small daily chores and take some of that off of their mind, even if it's caregivers as well as the dying, right? Yeah, I've, I've seen this too. People who are on their deathbed are worried about, you know, how high the grass is getting and getting and are the chickens getting fed and, and is this or that or the other thing being taken care of. If You know, it, it may not seem to have a lot of practical value to you to take care of those very, tan- like very seeming, seemingly kind of meaningless practical task, but it may have tremendous value, tremendous emotional value uh, to that person who's dying. And there are things that do have, that are obviously important, that have big impact, like wills and, and all that stuff, which we're about to get into. But yeah, if you if you can take over any of that stuff, do it. Yeah. And like Justin alluded to, the advanced directives, uh, I, th- I think are important. You need to have all that stuff sorted out as early as possible, whether that's a will or an estate planning. You know, uh, my mother, my wife's mother, when she passed away, she thought she had a will because she wrote her wishes down. And she had a couple of her friends uh, sign off on it, and it was absolutely worthless in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. It, it wasn't worth the papers printed on. But uh, so make sure you got all your ducks in a row. That will help, and that's more for all of us that are listening and living today. Get that shit sorted out, man, so that you don't have to put your, your loved ones through it when you're passing. Absolutely, man. I, I could talk about this at length. I've seen this in my own family, uh, a property, you know, someone dies, a property is willed to three <laughs> three different people. They all have different ideas about what to do with it. And it, you know, in, in this instance, um, these are fairly close relatives. It tore that whole family apart because everyone thought something different should be should have been done and you know everybody had their own ideas about how much effort they had put into it and all this stuff man um if you're the dying if you're and you will be at some point don't don't leave your 
decedents a, a big mess to sort out and a big something to fight over or or have questions about or you know don't leave don't leave people with questions about well would Justin want to be you know be living in a state like this or would he you know would he prefer we do this or that or the other uh, make that absolutely clear far in advance and I'll be honest with you Rich this is this is something that I am am slack on I'm you know I'm in my late 30s but uh, people certainly die much younger than me every single day I should probably uh, probably get my act together on this well, I know you had one when you were in the military. They they make you have all that shit taken care of. But, uh, you know, things have changed in your life since probably you wrote your first will in your 20s, I imagine. But, uh, yeah, it's time to redo all that stuff. Yeah, no question about it, man. Um, yeah, if you're, if you're one of our listeners, man, this is part of being a competent human being is not leaving a big fucking mess when you die, man. Well, and you you alluded to it a minute ago, and it's kind of been swirling in my head. You know, these are potentially, like when you said um, three people get deeded the property and everybody's got different ideas on it. And, you know, these are emotional uh, minefields that are laid by by the person that just passed away. Like when my grandfather died and we all came in for the funeral, my father said, hey, you know, you're going to, I've inherited all this stuff. We need to run by the bank because you're my uh, executor. So, okay. So me and my dad, after lunch, we're like, okay, my dad says, you know, I'm going to take Rich and we're going to run by the bank. Well, what did my, my sister was still alive then. What did my brother and sister think? Like, oh, what's going on there? You know, how come we're not going to the bank? You know, what, what's all this money talk? You know, it's, there's a bank involved. So it, it caused a lot of animosity and hate that probably didn't need to be there. In hindsight, I should have been like, hey, why don't we all go to the bank and explain what the hell we're doing so that there's complete transparency. Nobody has to get their panties in a ruffle, right? Yeah, and, uh, you know, one thing specifically that I've been told several times by, you know, real estate people and attorneys both is never, ever leave multiple people a single item to, to share as they see fit, because that is, especially real estate, because that is always an emotional minefield. I've seen that in several families, Rich, not just mine. I've seen that. I, I could I can name three cases off the top of my head where somebody's done that. Uh, leave it in a trust with instructions to sell it and split up the money or like, <laughs> don't leave it for them to sort out because it, uh, it it can tear families apart, man. And that's not what you want to leave in your legacy. No, and it's it's a comical story. Uh, I didn't I hadn't told you about this, but I came across a um, my grandmother's desk. My we called her memo. My memo's desk, and there was an old letter in there that she had wrote to an attorney who was handling the estate of my great grandfather, and um, she wrote this well typed out two page letter about how she wanted her butter churned back and uh he had borrowed it back on, and she remembered the day that he borrowed it you know why justin because it's the day that uh pork chops went up to 25 cents a pound and nobody would ever pay that for pork chops it was just the most <laughs> it was the funniest little thing you ever saw and it was so quaint because you know they're all passed away now and it was just funny like the thing that she wanted, like, look, he borrowed it. I never got it back. It's my butter churn. It's been the family forever. I want my butter churn. And you're the lawyer. Get it for me. So it's funny. <laughs> I like that, man. Uh, let's talk about some of the specifics on how to say goodbye to your dying loved one. I would say the first one is don't wait till the last minute. Don't, um, you know, I, I think there's a, a bit of a tendency to do that because saying goodbye or having that 
you know, having that uh, very intensely intimate moment with that person is an acknowledgement that they're going to die, which we all probably on some level hesitate to confront. But yeah, don't, don't, don't put that off, man. You, you know, I, I, as I told, uh, as I told Kai the other day, I was having a disagreement with someone and she's like, I, you know, if I do this, I get accused of that. If I do the other thing, I get accused of something else. And I said, well, just do it the best you can do it with the idea of, I don't want to have any regrets. I want to know that I did the best I possibly, possibly could in this situation. If that person can't come around, it's not my problem. It's their problem. And I kind of look at this the same way, man. Do put yourself in a situation where you're not going to say, man, I wish I would have done A, B, or C. Yeah, we've all probably heard the thing like, uh, I just ran out to the restroom when I came back. They were gone. You know, And that that could happen. So uh, don't wait to, to say it. And there, there's a... A physician that wrote a book called The Four Things That Matter Most, and, and this book, I have not read it, Justin, but it, it came up in when I was uh, preparing for this episode. And when The Four Things That Matter Most, there's four things, I guess, that she says that dying people like to hear. And that is, you know, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. So if those are th- something that you need to be saying to this person, make sure you say it. I, I need to write those down, man. What? Are, uh, I'm sorry. I forgive you. Thank you, and I love you. Yes. Yeah. Please, gotcha. for, please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you, and I love you. And I. Yeah. So the next one is: it's okay, even comforting, to let on that you know the end is nearing. Right? I don't think it does anybody any good to like. Oh no, you you're a fighter. You'll get through this. I think that can hurt the person who's like, man. I, I've given the last full measure, and I, I know this is the end of the road, right? I agree. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, man. There's, uh, like, we all kind of know when we've reached our, exhausted our fortitude or our mental energy on something or whatever it is, and it's it's a little bit invalidating for someone to say, ah, you you got this, you're going to, you know, you'll, you'll whatever. And, um, you know, we probably all have a little bit more in us than we think we do. But I, I agree, man. It, it's it's not a bad idea to, uh, I, I guess, kind of go with the next bullet here, which is follow that person's lead. A- absolutely. If they're like, bro, uh, and that's that was Roland's thing because he had beaten colon cancer in the 70s. And then uh, when uh, he was diagnosed with a small cell cancer, he's like, well, this is the one that's going to kill me. You know, he's like, you know, I'm I'm in my late 80s. This is, this is not good. And I'm I'm good with it, you know. And uh, not that he was re- wanted to die or anything, because this guy was sh- mentally extremely sharp to the very end and physically fit as any 80-year-old that ever walked the earth. But he knew, like, you know, this, is, this one's probably got my number on it, you know, and it and ult- ultimately did. Uh, and so truth is good, you know. He knew the truth, and um, but I think, but in the literature it said so is a little white lie. And, and the example that was given in some of the literature I saw was, this one particular mother, she wanted to know that that uh, her daughter had reconciled with the sister, right? This was a, very important to her. And um, she told the mother the truth, no, I've, I've not reconciled with Sarah. You know, we're still pissed off at each other. And that's the way the mother went out with this terrible thing hanging over. And she said, if I had to do it over again, I would have probably told her, yep, we're all good. She's coming down for Christmas and blah, 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 you know. Right, which makes me think, Rich, that a lot of these uh, comfort the dying tasks are to comfort the living after the dying is gone. Um, the you know the mother's not going to know that even moments later uh, once she passes. But you know, again, how how do you want to live with that? Um, 
you know, for the rest of your days with that, that idea that, that, uh, you know, your mother went out with that, (laughs) with that image in her mind. But yeah, I totally agree, man. A a little white lie is okay. But, uh, but again, you know, situation will dictate, and this is a case by case thing, you know, every single circumstance of somebody dying is going to be a little bit different, but uh, kind of follow that person's lead and, you know, don't, you know, again, don't, uh, <laughs> ah, you're fine. You'll, you'll, you know, you'll be on your feet in no time. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so the next one is keep talking, even if you're not sure you're being heard. And I think this is a really good one because, uh, you know, coma patients and the, some of the people that have recovered have said, you know, I, I heard you, I knew you were here. I felt your touch. Uh, so keep talking, even though you're not sure you're being heard. I, some of the things, like I remember talking to my sister as she passed, and she was completely unconscious. And Roland, although he was most of the time, you know, um, and what you say to him is is personal to you. Um, you know, I told Roland, you know, he was a Christian guy, and I'm like, hey, man, I'll, I'll see you soon. Don't worry. I'll We'll get some ice cream soon. Don't worry about it. You know, and he knew what I meant. I'd give him a wink, and he'd wink back, and... And that was a whole thing between us. But it's, um, I don't know, man. What do you think? Keep talking? I think i think that's a very, very important thing, man. Um, that, especially if that individual doesn't have the capability to respond, you know, just, just put yourself in that shoes and imagine how incredibly meaningful that would be for someone to be there and, uh, and continue talking to you. Uh, very likely you might not have the ability to respond. And, and I think too often, man, you know, going back to the earlier in the show, we get to that point of, you know, kind of nothing else can be done or kind of, I I don't want to say giving up, but kind of, um, I I guess just reaching that kind of point of, of what can I do for this person? And, and, and probably just a little bit, just downright getting uncomfortable. And we, we just all shut up and that person's left alone with their thoughts or whatever. Yeah, that's not good. And and that is kind of leads into the next one. Try to stay present. You know, don't get ahead of yourself. Um, be in this moment with them. Uh, take it for what it is. Don't get too far. Like you said uh, earlier, Justin, just talking about people in the past tense. Man, I'm right here, bro. You know, let's let's be present. Let's be mindful of where we're at. But uh, and trust your instincts. You know, not the rules. You know, the rules for this kind of how to say goodbye to a dying loved one uh, might be written down somewhere, but that doesn't mean you can't break the rules, right? Yeah, absolutely not, man. Uh, again, each one of these is individualized. Each one of these is case by case. No two uh, dyings are going to be, or deaths are going to be exactly the same. So go with your gut, do what is, is appropriate in, in the, under the circumstances for that person. Yeah. There was a comedian here in East Tennessee that I followed and he was dying of cancer and he was a pretty young guy and one of the final things he wanted to do was him and his buddies were always screwing with each other. And um, one of his friends said, you know, uh, so he's a day or two from dying and he wants to screw with his buddy. So they get some roadkill and he uh, throws it in the crawl space underneath his house, you know, so this animal dies and stinks up the place. And it, he just got so much humor out of that in his final hours. And it's like, hey, man, that's not in the rules to do that kind of stuff to your buddies, but that's what he wanted to do. Why not? Yeah, yeah. I, I Actually, I love that, man. I appreciate that a lot. All right, so what else we got? 
one of the things that can probably be a little problematic is this every single time you walk out of the room, you have this big formal farewell speech that you give the the potentially dying and, and then you come back, oh, they're still there. And then I need to go get a snack. Oh, I need to tell you something. And you have this big drawn out dramatic thing. I don't know that that helps anybody. Uh, like you say, um, don't wait to the last minute, say what you're going to say and then, and then move on. I, I agree. And, you know, maybe, maybe when you're leaving that room to go to the bathroom, to go get a snack, whatever, maybe a, uh, you know, just, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go get a snack. I'll be back. I love you. That's probably, uh, yeah, I, you know, again, there's there's no rules to this, but yeah, it doesn't have to be a uh, a lifetime TV show moment every time you walk out of that room. Yeah, and you can speak volumes, you know, without even saying a word, you know, with a look or a glance or a touch, um, a hug. You know, it doesn't have to be the right words. It, it it can just be you being present with them and and sharing that moment for for what little time you have with them and. And that's kind of all we have on that. Anything else you want to add to how to say goodbye? No, man. Uh, you drew most of this information from a couple different sources. We will absolutely have links to those in the show notes if you want to follow up on that and uh, and look into that a little bit more. Um, and if uh, if our listeners have anything that we left out here, we would we would love to hear about your you know your techniques uh, and your experience with this. Um, yeah, I guess that's about all we got, man. Yeah. So I'll go into the the. The book of the week, then this is um, one of probably two books I've read on the Holocaust that were just, I mean, literally life changing. The first one being Night by Ali Wetzel, and I'm sure at some point that'll be the book of the week. The other one was uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Have you ever read this, Justin? I've not, man. I've I, like you. I've read Night, but no, I haven't. Yeah, <clears throat> it is an amazing book, and for the listener that's not familiar with it, uh, Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in Nazi concentration camps during World War II, and he was also, I believe, a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist prior to this and had a practice in Austria or wherever. And he goes into the concentration camps, and I don't think he told them that that was his profession, but he did provide uh, psychological care for the other inmates that were in there with him, and he comes out of it, and he and he says that all inmates in these in this moment went through three basic things. The first is shock during the initial admission admission to the the camp. The second was they finally finally reached apathy after becoming accustomed to that terrible experience. And then the third one was once they got released, you know, they had these reactions of uh, almost what we probably call survivor's guilt in some way. That what was it all for? What's this all about? Um, just an amazing book, and I, I cannot, cannot uh, recommend it enough. Well, brother, that is going on my personal reading list very soon. I'm kind of looking for something to read right now anyway, so that'll, that'll go on the list. The, bringing up uh, that book and Night specifically uh, makes me think we should start, and I think we might have mentioned this in an episode before, an Across the Peak canon. These are the... Uh, you know, if you read these books and absorb their messages, you will uh, you'll be well on your way to be an ATPAF. I, I'm totally down with that. I, I worked for a really good Marine officer who had that. He was like he had four books on his desk, carried them everywhere with him, and um, I read all of them and and really enjoyed them. I, I, one or two of them would probably get in my top ten, but but yeah. I, back to Frankel's thing. One final thing, and I want to close this. Um, what could be a rather depressing episode. 
but was Frankel's claim in the book that a positive attitude was absolutely essential to surviving in the camps. Um, And one of the things that you may draw from the book is that he kind of implies that those who died just gave up, and he gives some examples of that in the book. But um, finding meaning in one's suffering, you know, your life on earth may not be perfect. Probably, chances are, it probably won't be. But even in those moments where your life sucks and you're suffering, and, and whether it's physical, mental, or emotional suffering, find meaning and purpose in that, and you will make it through to the other side. So um, really good book, man. I like that a lot, man. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, I have nothing else, man. You want to take us out? Yeah, so uh, guys, be sure to check out Instagram. Uh, we are at Across the Peak. Kai is our social media director, and she is absolutely crushing it on Instagram. So follow us, like us, comment on stuff you see there. Um, make sure you check out the new Across the Peak store. Uh, there are links to that at acrossthepeak.com. And make sure you guys check out the blog, man. We do these show notes are absolutely phenomenal. And I I, I say that because I write almost all of them, but I think I'm being very, very unbiased in that. We have photos that accompany almost every single one of our articles. We have links to all the stuff we talk in the show. We tend to outline, tend to try to outline the whole show and sometimes even offer uh, a little bit of expanded information in the show notes. So Please check out uh, that out as well as the additional content that we have on the blog. We try to get something up uh, at least every week. Uh, don't always succeed on that, but we always try to, and, and usually we do sometimes a couple of times a week. So check that stuff out. And until next week, remember, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.